You are listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and this episode is from a Zoom webinar we held on November 5th, 2020. This webinar occurred just two days after the presidential election between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. At the time of this webinar, there was no clear winner between the two candidates. This webinar was moderated by Rachel Washburn, and she does a great job of introducing our guests and starting the conversation. Welcome to Academy Security's latest geopolitical webinar. Thank you for joining us. Our team is incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to share our insights with you. During this call, we hope to provide some unique perspectives and some context in a time of uncertainty and unknowns. Those unfamiliar with Academy, we are a minority-owned and veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to train, hire, and mentor post-9-11 veterans. We are nearly 50% veteran-staffed. And today's webinar is a great example of how Academy strives to constantly add value beyond our designation. At the intersection of authenticity and capability for our firm is our geopolitical intelligence group. Joining us on today's call is General Spider Marks, our head of geopolitical strategy. He is the former commanding general of the U.S. Army Intelligence Center. And an important element of our geopolitical offering is Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. He has over 25 years of industry experience and he helps contextualize the input from our team of retired admirals and generals. He helps investors and corporations alike understand the implications of national security concerns and challenges. So without further delay, General Marks, I would like to pose the first question to you. Uh, it is Thursday, it is a couple days after the election uh, lots of concern about how the election day was going to go. It seems like it went pretty well. Um, can you discuss how you see it, how the United States created some offensive action to ensure that things ran as smoothly as possible? Well, Rachel, thanks for the question. Yeah, I would say that, let, let me start with saying I don't think anybody is surprised by the nature of this election, unless, of course, you're a political pundit and you think it should have been a blue wave or you thought it was going to be a slam dunk in another direction. Clearly, we have a very, very tightly contested election right now, and it remains in the balance. We'll see what happens over the course of probably a couple of days. We're not sure, but we should we should know pretty soon. The good news, obviously, is that at this point, I think it's safe to say there was no real discernible at scale type of intervention that we thought might have happened from either foreign or domestic malign actors. Um, I think our national security agency, I think our cyber command has done a phenomenal piece of work. In fact, it's really the whole of government has focused in on making sure that this election could run and would be conducted effectively. Clearly we have some issues, some small issues that are taking place in some remaining states, but I think in the aggregate, this was a well done election. We should all be proud of that. It's certainly a relief, but I think uh, now that we don't have a clear winner, um, the threat continues when it comes to misinformation or disinformation. Um, can you discuss, you know, how that threat stands now that the election is over, but, you know, perception still matters at this stage? Well, absolutely. I, I would say, first of all, we still have a commander in chief, and that's what's wonderful about our system. And we will have that commander in chief until he changes out possibly, or there's some form of a transition to a new Trump administration or a brand new Biden administration in January. So there is consistency and continuity of government. That's what's most important. But also as you suggested, Rachel, our, our competition that exists over the horizon 
is ever vigilant. There is no indication that any of those actors that want to try to disrupt our election or as a matter of routine want to start to delve into our our cyber activities, whether those are financial, whether those are national security, or whether it's just routine communications on the commercial side, that will exist as we go forward. So our, our, our competitors are leaning forward just like our cyber capabilities are leaning forward to be both defensive and offensive to ensure that we don't have any disruptions beyond what we would see, I, would, I, I think it's fair to say, during normal course of business. Peter, I want to bring you in. Um, lots of questions ahead of the election about how we think the market was going to respond. Um, given what we know now, uh, what is your view on market implications and um, what we can expect in the coming days? Yeah, I think the market has kind of accepted that it's likely to be Biden. But I think as a whole, the market's a little bit indifferent on that. Because I think as we've talked about leading up to the election, on some of the big policies, namely where we're headed in terms of stimulus and where we're headed in terms of dealing with China going forward, both leaders had similar ideas, how they might execute them, the exact form they take were slightly different. But I think from a market perspective, that's important. When I look beyond that, I think one of the big things that really kind of calmed markets was keeping the Senate red. I think markets, for better or for worse, do like this idea of gridlock. So if you have a blue house, red Senate, it matters less who is president. So this high degree of uncertainty over the president isn't roiling markets like you might expect. I think that's because right now we've kind of accepted that in all likelihood, we will have a blue house, a red Senate. And in fact, the House actually lost some seats to the Democrats. So the fears of really aggressive policy have been reduced. So I think we get back to kind of business as usual once we determine this. The last thing I will say is, I think it's going to become very interesting once we determine who is going to be the president, how we deal with COVID, because the COVID cases are rising. And that is one area where President Trump versus um, Vice President Biden have had very big differences of opinions in how we should handle that. Yes, yeah, certainly will be interesting. Um, based off what we know in with the Senate and the House of Representatives, uh, the results there. Can you discuss what you view um, tax policy and fiscal policy, how it could evolve um, given what we do know now? Yeah, I think if we keep the Senate um, red, we will not see a massive shift in tax policy. I think there was a growing concern that what you would see was big taxes on individuals, big taxes on corporations to fund a really expansive balance sheet and a lot of spending programs, including the Green Deal. I think that is on hold. Having said that though, I do think we open the path to stimulus. We were hoping for stimulus back in July and August. We did not get it. It got bogged down ahead of the election. But I do think the calculus has really changed for McConnell now that they've solidified their seat. It is time to get something done. I think they actually want to deliver something while President Trump if he does lose, still is president. Or in any case, I think the number of you know, cases that we're seeing in COVID, the increase in hospitalizations, it's time to get something done. We will get to the table. I actually think we're going to see a fairly productive session, regardless of who gets chosen and regardless of whatever contention there is at the president level. I think the Congress will get together and deliver a package that President Trump can sign. Yeah. 
Um, well, let's let's hope that is the case. Um, maybe a little bit of a bright spot in productivity. Uh, you mentioned COVID. That's an overlay of the entire year. We're seeing cases uh, rise. It's taking even some of the noise out of the election um, in the news cycle. Uh, General Marks, back in March when the country shut down, we saw the military mobilize as a response. Uh, the entire industrial complex mobilized, you know, much like in World War II. Um, what can you say about uh, a potential response, um, whether it's a, a Trump two or a, a Biden one, uh, to the new rising cases that we're seeing. Well, I tell you, I I would say that when you look at, <clears throat> excuse me, when you look at what this administration's done relative to nations across the globe, the United States is suffering. I think equally. Certainly, the scope of our suffering is that much larger. It's a much larger country. But I think every nation is having a very, very difficult time getting its arms around what a COVID response package should look like in terms of behavioral changes. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical that a Biden administration vis-a-vis -a, -vis a Trump administration will be a dramatic turn in terms of what's going to happen relative to COVID. Um, so I do think what we see with, I, I, I would take a step back and I would say primarily the thing that's going to fundamentally alter our behavior going forward is the onset of a vaccine. Uh, we have some therapeutics that are, pro are proving to be very, very effective to mitigate, but a vaccine to really get after and eradicate it to a certain degree. Uh, the effects of COVID will really alter how we move forward. Um, I don't one think thing, whether it's a Trump two or it's a Biden one that we're gonna see fundamental differences irrespective of the rising numbers. I completely agree, Spider. I think the one thing to add though is as we've talked before, National security and national defense has always had this policy of being able to do a wartime production. I continue to believe that we failed that during this war with COVID where we were not able to produce enough healthcare material for ourselves. I think that is gonna continue regardless of who the administration is to make sure that we can create our own PPP, uh, PPE, sorry. And when you look at what's going on the vaccines, right? we're making a big effort to develop those and manufacture those domestically. So I think regardless of what happens, this has been yet another impetus to push towards a resurgence in domestic manufacturing. And that's going to be a big part of our future in the next two years, I think is infrastructure spending, but also this domestic manufacturing and never forget that COVID is a part that's pushing us that direction. Cause I don't think we ever want to get caught the way we were where we could not manufacture the things that we needed in a timely manner. You know, it really is kind of the end of globalization to a certain degree, Peter, you know, the repatriation of the supply lines. But also what we saw with the start of COVID is that one of, it was not a discernible um, sudden, a, a sudden thrust of, of a threat in front of us. We, we had a slow burn. We had to crawl into it to realize that we had this challenge. I think what this has trained us is on the intelligence capabilities to get out over the horizon, be able to see, discern, see, and to make sense of what those indicators are out there so that we can make decisions that much earlier. So I'm in agreement that we mobilized far too slowly. And I think the response is not just necessarily in terms of our manufacturing, but in terms of our ability to reach out, see and discern and make decisions earlier. General Marks, to that end, we heard during the debates, uh, President Trump discuss how when a vaccine is developed, they would utilize the military to essentially deploy the vaccine. Do you have experience um, in that capacity using the military or the National Guard in that way? Can you walk us through what that looks like? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I do have that experience in a lot of deployments. If I can, again, give a little bit of a, of a description of this, but in a lot of deployments, it's not necessarily clear how the military is going to engage immediately when you get on the ground. Very often you're trying to discern friend from foe. So you walk in with a bunch of capabilities and the way I've always put it, are you gonna go into a certain location and try to clean teeth and inoculate a bunch of folks? Or are you gonna walk into those neighborhoods and try to kill everybody? You simply, I'm not trying to be uh, blatant here, but clearly those are kind of the, the decisions that have to be made. So when you lead, we certainly have the capacity in terms of our lift, in terms both airlift and ground capacity, as well as an immense medical focus. We can, do, we can help in terms of the validation and in terms of the distribution once a vaccine has been identified and has been validated, tested, et cetera. And we also have an incredible capability to use civilian capacity as a part of that distribution, whether it's ground, rail, sea, or air. We have that experience. We've done it before multiple times. That's really not an issue in terms of reaching those different corners of where we exist to be able to distribute that capability. Well, I wanna move on to the more foreign policy element of this discussion. We discussed a lot how we think the policy around China is gonna remain the same, regardless of who ultimately wins the election. I think the JCPOA is a, a great example of where there is going to be a potentially a stark difference in policy. General Marks, can you discuss um, that particular agreement and any other multilateral agreements that we can anticipate a, a significant change on, depending on the results? Well, again, if if President Trump is reelected, I would see us maintaining the, the status quo in terms of this administration today and then the administration going forward, having a very similar approach. Uh, very hard line. The, our withdrawal from a number of those um, agreements will remain in place. If it's a Biden administration, I would see that the switch will begin to turn back on and the United States will want to re-enter a number of those agreements. The, the Joint Cooperative Plan of Action, the Nuke Deal, the Iran Nuke Deal. The United States will want to get back in. I don't know what the preconditions will look like for that to happen, but I would guarantee you that in very short order, a Biden administration will get back into that. The Trans-Pacific Partnership will begin to engage again there. The Paris Climate Accord will sign back up for that. UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which covers a number of, you know, the, the application of forces and money in a whole bunch of locations that require United Nations support to stand back up infrastructure to attack medical issues will be that much more involved there. And then also the United Nations had what was called a number of sustainable target goals that really established floors in terms of minimal types of behavior, in terms of protection of women's rights, human trafficking, elimination of human tra trafficking, minorities' rights. And the United States will again, with the President Biden, be more actively involved. That's a little bit lengthy way of saying a Biden administration will be far more multilateral in terms of its engagement over the horizon or vis-a-vis -vis what you see in the Trump administration right now. Yeah, I think that's great point, Spider. And I think the one thing I'll be watching from is certainly the rest of the world, I think, is looking forward to the, if it is a Biden administration to us embracing, you know, more multinational approach. I think 
what I'm watching from, from a macro standpoint in the global economy is, although that sounds great in theory, Europe, for example, has a lot of difficulty getting its own act together, right? It's four years later and they still can't figure out Brexit. So we're going to have to join with some people who aren't necessarily good at getting their act together and who don't necessarily have the same agenda. So example with China, I think Europe has a much more difficulty breaking loose from China or being competitive with China. So hopefully we can pull this together. And I do think there's a time sensitive nature, right? This isn't something that we can let drift on for years and years like we've done because China's rapidly caught up to us as we've seen their technology in some areas is very, very strong. They have some of their own IP to protect. So my concern would be that in our effort to embrace globalism, maybe we give up some of the impetus that we've had. So it, it, I think it's gonna be an interesting balancing act. Hopefully if it is Biden, this all works. If not, we'll you know, see where it goes. Well, I think it's interesting, Peter, you know, you made a really, really good point that um, there are a number of nations and collect a collective of nations that don't get their act together, um, kind of guilty as charged. You know, politics and politics among nations is a messy, chaotic business. So we shouldn't be we shouldn't be surprised. Even autocratic nations are having a hard time. You know, there is no succession plan that's in place now for Xi Jinping. I mean, by 22, 2022, he's supposed to be gone. He'll be about 70 years old then. But it wouldn't surprise me if he continues on but nothing has been stated coming out of the Communist Party in terms of what that's gonna look like. So chaos is really normative behavior as we look across the globe. One area that has kind of fallen back from the headlines, but was a great example of um, President Trump's style with uh, a one-on-one -on -one approach and a, a personality-based, relationship-based approach is North Korea. Uh, we obviously saw a significant change in the dynamic um, with some very highs and some uh, some tempering of those um, high tensions, ultimately. But how do you see North Korea or the United States relationship with North Korea evolving um, if it ends up being a Biden victory? Because I think in the past four years, that was one of the things that we talked about the most. That was you know, a real big surprise and a, a huge shift from the last 50, 60, 70 years of engagement. I think in... Uh, what we do with North Korea, certainly we have a very large percentage of what that solution or what that approach looks like. But I think a Biden administration might be far more deferential, that's not a bad thing, um, to what's happening in Seoul. And clearly that administration, uh, Moon Jae-in, is much more accommodating to what's taking place in Pyongyang. Um, but what you can see compared to what the Trump administration has done President Trump has had what he would describe as a fulsome kind of transactional relationship, person to person level with Kim. But below that, there really has not been um, a full effort to track and to moderate the behavior in terms of nuclear development in North Korea. And that's what our relationship with North Korea is all about. It's his military development of nuclear capabilities and the ability to, to move those nukes throughout the region and into other areas in the globe. That's what makes it a threat. What Kim does internally, let's be frank, is ghastly and as tragic and as uh, onerous as it is, is not our concern. We're not gonna fix that problem. It only is a problem when he can reach out and affect negatively behaviors elsewhere. Um, and we haven't really been able to do that. Kim continues to develop nukes. Irrespective of what he says, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. 
you know, what's happening behind the curtain is, oh, I don't worry about that. Well, that's what we need to worry about. That's what we need to be able to track. So I think going forward, a Biden administration might be far more accommodating. I don't know how that's going to end up in terms of sanctions or at least protocols to track so that we can scratch and sniff, we can inspect what's going on in North Korea. Until North Korea gets back into the NPT, nuke development's gonna go completely unchecked. Peter, before we move on from foreign policy and on to the question and answer, um, anything in the last 72 hours that you've seen um, that is gonna be important to highlight as far as our uh, engagement with China around trade um, based off of the results of the election where we stand right now? No, I think as we've talked about before, both parties kind of have similar ideas. I think we are going to move forward. I also do think it's going to be more multinational. There's going to be more of a green element to this if it is a Biden administration. And again, I think that's very good. I think we also have to be careful, though, that we don't wind up fighting with one hand be tied behind our back. So there's going to be, I think, a lot of things that sound great on the surface that are m more difficult to execute. And maybe that's why some of these simple things have worked maybe better than people thought. So it's gonna be a shift, but I think we, we're gonna to have to challenge ourselves to make sure that things that sound good and we have these global meetings where everyone says this is all great, turn into actions that help us and that we don't let ourselves kind of, you know, lose a, this momentum that we have as we try and figure out how to deal with China. And let's not forget, well, we're talking about our own election. We won't talk about this. We've talked about it in the past, though. You know, China's being very aggressive in their own region, right? They continue to talk about Taipei. They're taking actions against our companies over there. So this is not going away. Fortunately, I think both sides agree with it. And really, it is a national security issue. And that's why I'm so confident that we're not going to see a big about face in terms of how we deal with China. And we have to be very careful that we don't if it is a Biden administration or a Trump administration, number two, we can't allow ourselves to be flush with some form of victory, as you described, Peter, if it's a tactical one. China takes a much longer view. We have to be very, very careful about feeling good about ourselves. China will, like a good chess player, China will lose on the margins up front, knowing that they can win down the road, and that bigger hammer might fall in three or four years as we're patting ourselves on the back. We have to be very, very conscious of that type of an engagement. Yeah, and I definitely wanna make sure that we don't come across that, you know, we're ending our relationship with China. China is gonna be a very, very important trading partner. But I think for the last, you know, several decades, we've done a lot to enable China and maybe didn't get what we expected back. So I think this is more about changing the dynamics of how we deal with China, what we expect from them, what we should expect from ourselves. It's not gonna be, you know, a complete ending of relationship with China, just a shift into something where maybe it's a little bit more two-sided. You're right, Peter. You know, we always thought that if we engaged with China, if we embraced them, they would in some manner embrace us back and begin to morph. And in fact, aspirationally, they would want to become more like the United States. We got that entirely wrong. That's actually a perfect segue into our first question from the audience. Uh, General Marks, can you discuss how our adversaries, uh, Russia, China, Iran, um, other non, maybe non-state actors that just want to create chaos are going to take advantage of this time, um, whether it's not a decisive victory? Um, yeah, during this, this is really a tactical interregnum. There's going to be a president, whether it becomes really contentious and there are a bunch of lawsuits and he's presaged what that might look like and the Supreme Court may get involved. Um, 
all of our adversaries are clearly going to take advantage of it. Primarily, I think, asymmetrically in that they're not necessarily going to try to do anything relative to our forms of governance or, or, or beyond what they would normally do uh, in terms of our financial institutions as well. But we'll go after those who are our friends and partners and try to, you know, sow those seeds, plant those seeds of doubt in terms of our ability to remain a good partner, a good ally and a leader globally. I think that's kind of what they do routinely. I would expect that to increase. Peter, anything to add on that? No, I think that covers it pretty well. Great. Um, and then General Marks, can you also discuss in the time, um, like you said, in between the, uh, the past president and the new inauguration, how the Pentagon functions. There's a, a headline out about Secretary Esper preparing his resignation letter. This may just be a, a very idiosyncratic um, headline to this particular administration. So maybe more broadly, can you discuss how the Pentagon functions um, in this in this period, um, and maybe even reflect on uh, 2000 when there you know wasn't an answer for 21 days. Yeah, I, I would say that the, the transition of power has been in place since the start. Our military um, remains focused on what we call task and purpose, i.e. the missions that we have to perform. Those are professionals deeply experienced, irrespective of who the, the Secretary of Defense might be or even the Commander in Chief. I really think that doesn't matter. The fact that Secretary Esper may have already authored a resignation letter is something that everybody in administration does and sticks in a drawer because they're ready to say, yep, I, I am prepared to depart. If you want me to stick around, I will. If you don't, I am, I, I've been honored to serve and here's my resignation. I think that's more kind of administrative than anything else and it's prudent on his part. Um, and we shouldn't think much about it. But the military remains absolutely focused on, on missions from top to bottom those great young men and women that are out there over the horizon doing heavy lifting today to the folks that are in silos with their fingers on a button, aircraft carriers and jets and the brand new Space Force. I mean, just a talented crew that have a number of missions irrespective of who the civilian leadership is during this period of transition. Peter, um, in the short time that we have left in the last few minutes, uh, we had a question about vaccine production. Do you have an idea of, you know, what the timeline is for that um, and maybe what it will look like to distribute? I have a little bit of an idea, but I think that's a great question in terms of, I think what we're going to see in this country now that the election is over, winding its way, is a little bit more information coming from the mainstream media. I think one thing that we've seen since COVID started is really so many things have taken on a political agenda. And I'm not sure the information ever comes through, you know, in a way that we would like, where here's the facts, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're looking at. And what I found over the last nine months is when I have conversations with people, the more of a decision maker they are, the more willing they are to hear facts, even if it's against the facts that they want or it informs them. And they're willing to look at this because they have to make decisions that are affecting their businesses, their people, their families. As you move away from decision makers, people had a much easier time, I think just, uh, I'm gonna go with this version or I'm gonna take that version. 
And I think the mainstream media really fed into that. And so what I think we're now going to start seeing is a lot more discussion, right? Right now, it's not going to break down to, oh, we're only going to have a vaccine because president wants a vaccine ahead of the election. I think we're going to have real discussions. We're going to have discussions of who should be taking it, why they should be taking it. So we're seeing trials going on already. We're seeing companies like Pfizer, I think, making these vaccines. We've got plans in place to distribute them. I think this is going to be well done. I think it's going to be organized. I think it will happen in a timely manner. Um, but I think some of this media almost disinformation and it's this lack of coverage, this lack of dealing into details like we would like is hopefully going to be over now that the election and we're all going to be able to take back and say, okay, what does that actually mean? And it's going to range from vaccines to even things as simple as masks where, yes, they work, but do they work if you touch it 20 times a day? Do they work it if you wear the same mask for four days in a row? So I think it's time to like how are we going to combat this virus? The medical community has been doing a great job. And now as the media, I think we'll be able to inform us better because not everything's going to be used as a way to poke a hole in someone's argument for the election. Yeah, so Peter, I don't you... know the timing of this, but I think it's important that we see a different media outlet. Thank you, Peter and Major General James Spider-Marks and Rachel for your contributions to this conversation. As Rachel mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Academy Securities is a service-disabled veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you are interested in engaging with Major General James Spider Marks, Peter Churr, or any of our geopolitical and macro strategy experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. We greatly appreciate the time you gave us today and look forward to speaking with you again soon.